today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government yesterday announced there will be an interim curriculum in place when it comes to sex education. Uh, the Minister of Education issued a revised health and physical education curriculum for grades 1 to 8. That's the one that was taught prior to 2014 from 1998 to 2014. High school students, however, will be taught the new curriculum, meaning the, uh, the new liberal curriculum in 2015, uh, which was introduced, of course, by the past government and in, in, in tackles the issues of same-sex marriage, gender, and cyberbullying. So as we drill down on this, I, I continually ask myself the question, why the heck are we making hay out of this? Uh, the high school kids are getting the new curriculum, the new old, no, I'll just leave it, I won't confuse things, the new curriculum, the 2015 curriculum. It's grades one to eight that are going back to the old curriculum. Uh, Todd White is with us, board chair, ward uh, five trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and with us now. Todd, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Great to join you. Are you are you having trouble keeping up with all of this? Oh, it's uh, every day there seems to be a new update. And uh, I think a lot of uh, more questions than answers, unfortunately. So we actually are right now uh, trying to deconstruct most of uh, what's been uh, delivered to us and uh hopefully be able to, with uh, the short term or time remaining between now and the beginning of school, update all of our teachers so they know what's going on. So uh, from what I understand or what I mentioned, is this correct? Yesterday, uh, the Minister of Education, Ministry of Education said, high school kids, you're on the new curriculum. You've got the new 2015 curriculum. It's one through eight that's reverting back to the old curriculum, correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. So, so we're looking at a gap analysis right now of exactly what the the changes are but we're getting those those exact same messages that's right so has it always been that way or is this new information well this is new information so we received earlier in uh the summer uh the memo that the minister had mentioned the will be reverting to the old curriculum um other than that there really weren't any further details shared with boards so it obviously left us spinning a bit because we have to make sure our teachers are prepared for the beginning of school and the curriculum isn't just something that is uh, one component uh, at one portion of the year. Uh, health and physical education runs from September to June, so we need mm. to be ready uh, come uh, the first day of school. So um, are you surprised that they've allowed the, the high school kids to take the new curriculum? Because that's not the way it was originally positioned, correct? Yeah, so I mean, really our, or at least my interpretation at this point is it, it's it's making the issue very, very complex. <laughs> There's a lot going on um, with uh, a little bit of change, but I think it's it's leaving people um, a lot more confused about what's actually happening. So that's where right now there's a, quite a few rumors and suggestions out there. Um, and hopefully as soon as we can kind of wrap our heads around it, be able to deliver some very clear communication to our families because obviously a lot of folks are paying attention to the issue. So if they're leaving the high school curriculum alone at this point, chances are they're not going to change it then. It's staying the same. What? Well, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and then that's where I think the consultation will, will play into it as well, which is also thin on details at this point. Um, obviously, they will be conducting consultation with parents and school boards and other stakeholders. So I think it will be interesting to see uh, what they focus on in terms of feedback and, and what are the areas that they, they want to change. At this point, it appears at the high school level, a lot of those themes around um, uh, cyberbullying, uh, sexting, other more technology-related uh, uh, issues have uh, or will remain. So it, it, it's to be seen at this point. 
So uh, is there any way to took, take a look at the old curriculum, grades 1 to 8, and the new curriculum, grades 1 to 8, and see what's obviously different? What, 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 what is the concern here? Yeah, and I think that that's a really good question. And, and you know, what are we making a really big deal about? Yeah. So, for instance, in some of the lower grades, and and we have it on our website where we break down the topics that are taught each school year. And the latest curriculum that was implemented in 2015 um, basically uh, uh, expedited or moved up some topics to an earlier grade. So while you might learn about um, and one that's been reported on frequently, you may learn about the appropriate body parts and names uh, in grade two. It's now been moved up to grade one, for instance. So that's just an example of, of same topics, but just is it age appropriate or is it uh, geared to the right uh, grade level? Um, what sort of consultation do you have to better come to grips with that? What, what consultation will be done that wasn't done the first time? Well, and that's the piece that I think is difficult to understand. Um, I think parents might be scratching their heads as well, because you can ask a parent and say, well, well what's an appropriate age for this topic? Um, we may not even know what grade it's currently taught in. Mm. Um, so where do you even start? I think what we're hoping is that uh, whatever the consultation looks like, looks like it does pull in um, expert opinion. I mean, there's a lot of folks that worked very hard in the 2015 curriculum uh, in terms of, of why there should be these changes, why students need this information, how the world has changed to uh, uh, result in, in a change in the, uh, in the curriculum itself. So I think, really, are, is it going to be a political exercise? Is it going to pull in parent opinion? Is it about school board opinion? Because if you asked us as HWDSB what our thoughts are, uh, it's that the most recent curriculum has been working. We haven't had many red flags at all. Um, after speaking with parents and working through the implementation, uh, it appears to work quite well. And, and you've taught the new curriculum for two years, one year or two? Yeah, so about, uh, I guess this would be two full school years. Right. Uh, already or including this one that's coming? Uh, this one, would I believe, would be the third school year. The third school year. And let me ask you, any concerns about this? Did you get much feedback from parents on on the new curriculum? Earlier on, uh, there was um, some concerns. A lot of it was misinformation um, around what is taught or what isn't taught. We held a number of community sessions to update parents back in and around 2015. Uh, they were well attended, and I think uh, by the end of those uh, those sessions, uh, we were able to uh, communicate clearer messages than whatever rumors we may have heard. What you know, we may have, might actually be teaching in classrooms. A lot of the, the criticism seemed to fo- focus around LGBTQ issues, gender identity issues, which unfortunately aren't aren't unique, um, or fortunately not unique to a sex ed component of curriculum. A lot of those topics are embedded in in, in day-to-day discussions in, in classrooms. It's simply the identity of those that attend our schools. So it, it's odd to see what the, the focus has been over all of these discussions. And to be honest, a lot of it really doesn't apply to the curriculum itself. When will you have, or when do you think you will have some sort of final document that you can move forward with and put this all to bed, no pun intended? Well, I think based on what they've delivered to us yesterday, uh, once we do our analysis, uh, we're currently working on a document to be able to share with our teachers. Um, we need those resources, obviously, to be able to uh, 
uh, deliver clear uh, topics in the classroom. So that's what we're doing as we speak. Um, it won't be ready, obviously, for probably another week or so, but we'll have that in front of teachers as soon as possible um, once we're able to, to do that work. So we should have all of those final answers uh, before the first day of school. So that's teaching things uh, as they are today. What about a new curriculum? Well, and I think that's that's the difference. And, and we're hearing um, different messages that the province uh, um, are sending out. Um, we've heard responses from the teacher unions, and it's, there seems to be a lot of back and forth. But at the end of the day, the one thing that we support at our board um, is that uh, professional development of our educators. So teachers are professionals. So they're trained uh, to deliver this content. But that being said, curriculum is mandated by the province. So they follow the curriculum. But in terms of how they deliver it, the topics that uh, are discussed, um, classroom discussions, how they respond to student questions, all of that is based on their, their professional discretion. So our, our belief is that while we will follow the curriculum, there's no doubt about that, teachers will use their best efforts to address concerns in the classrooms um, around discussions uh, and, and obviously gear their teaching styles to what students uh, are asking and, and what, what should be taught. If someone has a complaint or a concern, what's the process? What do they do? I mean, is there a snitch line? Well, and that's what that's what came out yesterday as well, the suggestion that there is an anonymous line that parents can access if they believe a teacher is not teaching the curriculum. I mean, there's a number of concerning elements of that um, where, you know, we could be duplicating what already exists. I mean, as a school board, as the employer of, of our educators, um, we hold them to account um, in terms of those job expectations. So I'm not sure what an anonymous uh, uh, line would necessarily advise us of. Um, we're open to those discussions anytime a parent wants to uh, come into a school and discuss curriculum or what may or may not be taught, um, as well as there's a, a second layer. There's the College of Teachers uh, that already exists in terms of holding teachers to account from that professional level. So I'm not sure if, if that uh, anonymous line, um, what it's, it's going to accomplish. I think it certainly uh, delivers some level of fear uh, to teachers, you know, to be cautious of, of working outside the boundaries. But once again, it, it's no different than, than any other topic, whether you're teaching English, science, math, um, or sex ed. Uh, there is curriculum. There's different approaches to teaching those subjects. And at the end of the day, um, they're professionals, so they'll be held to account the same way they always are, whether it's that topic or another. Uh, do you think in the end, Todd, we're going to end up in the same place we are now? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I mean, a lot of this feels a bit more like a political exercise of some sort, and that's what I think uh, rubs us the wrong way because there's a lot uh, you know, bigger issues that we could be tackling at this time. Yeah. Um, we felt a lot of these topics we, we put, put behind us. Uh, we solve them. So, for instance, you know, debates around gender identity, LGBTQ, those are debates of the past. For us, those are integrated into everyday uh, topics or discussions at schools. It's just simply human rights that uh, our staff and students identify with. You know, we don't go in there and debate religion and other characteristics, you know, day to day. That's part of our, our culture. So it, it's a bit odd to bring those topics and somehow throw them back, uh, you know, on the table for discussion because, quite frankly, we've moved past that. I mean, successfully um, so, and I would say that uh, we're in a much better place. So it's one that, you know, certainly leaves us scratching our heads. Todd White has been with us, board chair, Ward 5 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Todd, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
as well. Don't forget, phone lines always open. You can send us a note at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right, let's get into this. The leader of the Islamic State group has called for attacks on Canada and other Western countries in a new audio recording, the first attributed to him in nearly a year. Uh, Abdu Bakr al-Baghdadi urged the group's followers to respond to recent defeats by carrying out bombings, stabbings, and vehicular attacks in his 55-minute speech. The Islamic State, which which, uh, until last year controlled large swaths of Syria and Iraq, has since been driven into the desert by successive defeats in offensive by international allies in both countries. Uh, ISIS previously, of course, claimed responsibility for the July 22nd shooting on Toronto's Danforth Avenue, which left two dead and 13 wounded. Canadian police have said they haven't found any evidence to suggest a terror link in the mass shooting. The group also called for, uh, the, the group first called for terrorist attacks in Canada back in September of 2014. The following month, Captain Nathan Cirillo was killed in a shooting on Parliament Hill while Officer uh, Patrice Vincent died from injuries sustained in a vehicle ramming attack in Quebec. To talk more about all of this, David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert and on the line with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much, uh, much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. A lot going on, all right. Uh, how significant is this, considering the first time they called for these attacks, uh, we ended up with the loss of, of Corporal Nathan Cirillo. How significant is this audio recording? Well, of course, it's, uh, it's apparently very significant. I think there have been some technical difficulties in absolutely confirming that this was indeed al-Baghdadi, but I don't think there's much serious doubt, and it's certainly... Uh, in line, this uh, basic statement with the approach that Big Daddy's taken in the past, with the uh, approach that the Islamic State has taken in the past, including in relation to Canada, and with some of the operations, especially the more devastating ones that we've seen reported over the years. We know that ISIS has had a vicious potential and has been able to execute on its intentions, as we've seen in Europe, where there are literally hundreds of dead bodies that ISIS can claim uh, responsibility for as a result of the foreign operations by ISIS. There is still this pool, as you've mentioned, of an area where ISIS has some kind of control, but uh, above all, their message has spread. And we've seen evidence within Canada well before now that there have been infiltrations here. Uh, There are some communities, including in Ottawa, where ISIS-related and inspired people have been active. So, uh, yes, it shouldn't be much surprise to us that this is very much uh, perhaps in our future and certainly uh, in the landscape. Uh, What constitutes a link between a crime and a terrorist group? Uh, ISIS previously claiming responsibility for the July 22nd shooting on the Danforth. The Canadian police said they haven't found any evidence of it. What's the story? Well, uh, again, this is a technical legal question as much as anything else, but it's also an intelligence question. And uh, it must be said that uh, ISIS's record for claiming responsibility, though once it seemed to be fairly reliable, has uh, in recent years become more and more uneven. And so there is the impression that it might, perhaps in desperation, as the fortunes of war and terrorism seem to go against it, 
um, the acclaim by ISIS for credit that is not properly theirs. They may be trying to demonstrate for recruiting purposes and other purposes that their proverbial writ runs to all corners of the world, even if it is heavily circumscribed in reality. But the legal question, of course, is whether, according to our criminal code, you can demonstrate, if you are prosecuting or looking at prosecuting, that uh, there was violence or a threat of violence that was uh, motivated by uh, political, ideological, or other such. Uh, so, how such do we things. make that? How do we make that difference, though, David? Because you know, any attack that is very similar to a terror-like attack, where someone drives a vehicle into people, or, or what happened on the Danforth, these people will take credit for. I mean, what can what constitutes credit? Influencing the person or having some connection to them. Well, you can have uh, both of those or one or two other uh, possibilities, hybrids of that. Uh, That's why it's so important, of course, to undertake thorough investigations because you'll be wanting to understand about motivation. And when you understand about motivation, you'll further want to understand whether there was some form of networking, a command chain, or perhaps merely, if I dare say merely, uh, influence. I mean, we've seen uh, situations, I think 2014 in Canada, with those terrorism events uh, may have been primarily examples where um, the media that these people may have followed, including possibly the uh, calls for violence by ISIS at the time, uh, played a role in uh, triggering such people and the events of 2014 in Canada. So there are different ways in which uh, you can find a a terrorist uh, motivation. And and that's why especially social media and keeping an eye on the uh, computer and computer activity of uh, suspects can be very helpful because, of course, it can point to personal motivation, but it can also signal something about specific influences, including, as I say, some sort of specific chain of instruction or advice. Uh, obviously, this first happened. Uh, for Canada was first called out in September 2014. Following that, the, the attacks that I mentioned on those two soldiers, uh, Corporal Cirillo and uh, Warren Officer uh, Vincent. Um, because we have this new audio recording with, and are mentioned in it, what are officials doing in regard to being proactive to stop this sort of thing? I mean, again, are we to assume they're – and again, how do, you tie, how do you tie this together if the person just is influenced but, but has no direct contact? That's a pretty fine line. Well, uh, that's right, and uh, it's particularly worrying, of course, because if there should be no chain of command, uh, which was more the conventional way we used to think of terrorism in the old days, then there isn't the vulnerability that a a command chain can have in communications or other terms to uh, local authority. I mean, if you're involving several people, for example, there's a heightened risk that the network can be penetrated in some way. And that if not the network per se, their communications between one another could be penetrated. But if, you know, you've got a single individual, and if that individual turned on by general social media or something, then again, it's more difficult for authorities to stay on top of this. There can be some ways in which one can look at the problem, but we problem in some ways is metastasizing. We're focused quite properly on this ISIS situation. 
And we know how ruthless these people are, how fanatical they are. But we do have to remember that al-Qaeda is still operating and that Osama bin Laden specifically mentioned Canada over, I think, a decade ago Hmm. among a handful of countries that he was targeting. And I think at about that time, all of those countries had been struck by al-Qaeda. Canada was the one remaining for their attention. So you have these problems of resources, and it must be said that we have not made our situation any easier by the fact that we continue for almost purely political reason to bring huge numbers of people in from jurisdictions that are really fraught with issues of ideological extremism and terrorism. So among the many good people who will come in, we are really imposing upon ourselves a greater and greater risk situation. And that is to say nothing also of the fact that even if we shouldn't for the moment be talking about overt extremism and terrorism, there may be ideological views that are being brought in, supremacist views, that form within families that are part of the educational systems back home. We've heard about anti-Semitism and anti-black propaganda, viewing blacks as good only for slavery, for example, from some of these uh, areas. And it should not surprise us, therefore, if we start seeing actually developing in the country that might, if only locally for the moment, begin to cause uh, politicians in these areas to be less and less vigilant about the propagating of uh, radicalism, extremism, one hesitates to say even terrorism. But these are real problems, and this is one reason why it's about time, probably 20 or 30 years late, for the kind of reasoned, reasonable discussion and debate about uh, immigration and refugee issues that we're having. Uh, anytime you bring up the issue of uh, immigration and refugees and speak about it the way you are, many would say you're fear-mongering. What's your response to that, David? Well, I think the uh, record speaks for itself, and one of the really great things is that any number of genuinely moderate Muslims have come out and pointed out this, because they're as concerned as anyone for the future of their children. And uh, I might add that although I don't speak for the group, I, for many years, been a proud member of the advisory board of uh, a uh, Muslim-Canadian group called Muslims Facing Tomorrow. And they have been doing the work that, uh, frankly, a great many Canadians, non-Muslim Canadians, uh, haven't been inclined to do. They've spoken out about precisely these threats. And indeed, the leader of the organization, uh, Mrs. Rahil Raza, who's known internationally for her Mm -hmm. interfaith work and so on, had actually called for there to be a moratorium on immigration from her own Pakistani homeland on the grounds that we in Canada have been facing some radicalism from that vector uh, and that this is a threat to Canadian Pakistanis or Pakistanis of Canadi- uh, Canadians of Pakistani origin. Uh, similarly, uh, I've worked with uh, Iranian Canadians who, uh, as you probably know from the news, have been uh, very much up front in worrying about the nature of the more modern streams of uh, immigration from Iran. And some of them have actually theorized that perhaps 50% of immigration from Iran since about 1995 have been uh, loyal far more to the Iranian regime, a very dangerous situation than to Canada. So, We have a lot of very sensible people of good faith of all backgrounds 
who have recognized the home truths that I think we all need to explore. Your thoughts on the uh, Prime Minister and his dust-up with a protester in Quebec who asked him a question about uh, his immigration policy and uh, he called her a racist. Now, after further review, we find out that she does have quite racist uh, views and, and belongs to or, or affiliated or, or sympathizes with white supremacist groups. That being said, uh, over and above the person who asked the question, is it appearing that the prime minister is trying to suppress questions about this? It does. It does certainly looks that way, but it shouldn't surprise us because, frankly, so many, including in media, have, in effect, perhaps contrary to their own wishes, been suppressing a recent discussion because they've been fearful about uh, allegations of racism and so all the isms, which have now started to unfortunately debase the value of a claim of racism. The, uh, especially as a lawyer, I was concerned um, about some elements of that uh, episode involving the woman in Quebec. Uh, and, and there were some aspects that weren't entirely obvious, certainly weren't covered very well by media early on. Um, there is a genuine question in my mind about the extent to which somebody should be allowed to heckle and harass. We have a Section 2 constitutional right in our charter of free speech. We all know that. And it would be nice to understand better what limitations there might be. Because after a while, of course, the prime minister might not be able to convey the message he's entitled to convey if there's too much heckling. However, um, what quite alarmed, I think, some people, including some who might have been sympathetic to the prime minister, was were the scenes that are not that are often edited out of the clips that many people see, where an apparent police officer uh, laid hands upon this woman who was apparently controversial, and um, that is that is uh, in the absence of a physical threat or or uh, you know threat of force or use of force. Uh, that is quite a, a moment for an agent of state to do something of that kind. Uh, the woman claimed, I think she had osteoporosis, her arms had been held behind her, it looked like she was about to be manacled. And um, I, I have to confess, that was quite alarming. And one of the things that was almost absurd was that if, and here the uh, video may have been edited, but if um, the video was complete in its gist, gist you had a situation that looked like one where the police officer was not particularly sympathetic to claims that this woman was merely exercising her constitutional rights, was not particularly sympathetic to the fact that she appeared not to have at any time been a physical threat, and didn't seem to be unduly concerned about the fact that she was alleging and that she had sustained a bruise uh, from the officer's action. Yet, when an officer said to her, um, you, you're getting excited. And she responded by saying facetiously, yes, I'm a woman, I'm hysterical. He backed away. And so one might be left to wonder whether the political correctnesses involved in someone's fearing that they could be considered sexist outstrip all of the hmm. possibly infinitely larger questions about the physical safety of a suspect, the charter rights of an individual, and so on. 
I would very much like to understand better what the training culture at the RCMP or at whatever the police uh, outlet is that was responsible for this might be. Uh, getting back to uh, the situation that happened on the Danforth that left two dead, uh, any reason to believe there is any relation? Uh, we have heard nothing on this. Uh, police have been mum ever since uh, th- this situation uh, uh, happened. A- any sort of information at all that can uh, shed some light on the Danforth shooting? I know of none. Um, and I suppose we're going to have to wait until we hear something official. But it is where, just to put a footnote to what we were earlier discussing, it's where it's crucial that police, uh, the Crown, and other public authority maintain their credibility as even-handed individuals who are enforcing the law under the Constitution so that there be no reason for any kind of questions about whether anyone is putting their hand or finger on the investigative scales. I I see, incidentally, no indication that that is uh, being done in relation to the Danforth situation. But it's a helpful reminder for all of us in all of our walks of life. How will uh, officials interpret this information, this audio recording? Uh, Sorry about that. Could you repeat? How will officials interpret this audio recording? How will they react to it? Well, I would guess that they'll have to be uh, even more attentive than they're already being because uh, it does represent a shift. The greater publicity that this has attracted objectively changes the environment to some degree. There may be more people who were ready to be tipped over into action. And uh, as I say, we know for a fact that this kind of thing can have an influence on uh, at least some people. So this is not going to mean an easing of pressure on uh, security and intelligence in Canada or elsewhere, because, as you know, we rely to a considerable degree on our allies for uh, information and intelligence sharing and uh, operations. Does it matter if the directive comes directly from if if the threat directly comes from a source uh, within the Islamic State or ISIS or any one of these organizations or whether someone is just following them and for whatever reason, an outcast, uh, uh, someone who is uh, disenfranchised from society, decides to be a copycat. Do we handle it differently from an investigation standpoint if it's a copycat looking for attention, wanting to ride the coattails of an ISIS movement? Do we look at it differently than if it is actually someone who is connected to them in some way? Well, you would. Um, I mean, you can be killed just as dead by both uh, general exactly. approaches. But uh, you, you, you would have to almost by definition look at these things a little differently because uh, one would imply that uh, at the other end of the proverbial terrorism rainbow, you've got some kind of command or guidance or recruiting or training or funding element that has presumably got to be dealt with at some point. And that could be within our own territory. It could be abroad. We just won't know until we find out. And that's where a lot of intelligence cooperation can come in. But uh, that can be a very inviting target investigatively, because uh, you, as intelligence people, would want to be able to try to master 
any network that exists, because clearly any network that could exist can be brought to bear in future, maybe even almost endlessly, if it's uh, not uh, finished off. If it comes to an individual who perhaps only by social media is inspired, then you might argue that you're as much into the realm of thinking out counter-radicalization arrangements. Uh, not that, to be very honest, uh, we've seen the most convincing of successes on that level. In Canada, a fair amount of money has gone into counter-radicalization, and at times it's not entirely clear whether hmm. some of the people receiving the money are uh, at all events equipped to deal with this sort of thing, or whether the science is there, which is a pretty frightening uh, thought when you consider that there is this radicalization problem in Canada. David Harris has been with us in Cygnus Strategic Group, a terrorism expert. David, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The CAA and Ontario Provincial Towing Association have committed to a new towing bill of rights outlining consumer protection that is covered by law. And to talk more about all of this, uh, Teresa DeFelice is with us, Government and Communication Relations, CAA South Central Ontario, and is with us now. Teresa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. It seemed that this was meaning towing issues were a problem a decade or so ago. Uh, did we get a handle on this? Have we improved things since then? Why Why the conversation now? Well, there's a couple of reasons. We're still hearing these horrible stories, uh, firstly. Secondly, the government did take action by doing the consultations and taking a look at insurance issues and fraud, and which is how these these became encoded in law. They became law back in late 2015, uh, and then it took some time to implement them, and they were effective as of January 2017. But our, our polling shows that most people don't know about them. And so CA and the Provincial Towing Association, we talked about an easy-to-use reference guide that drivers can have available to them so that they can learn what those rules are and practice them when they're faced with the unexpected. So what have been some of the complaints? How did we get here? What's the problem? There's a few things. I mean, a lot of it relates to collisions, but but it's not only collisions. So, it's, you know, some of the, the, the opportunities for fraud and, and being taken advantage of are happening, even in breakdown situations. Um, but it, it really is this, uh, you know, you're stranded on the side of the road for whatever the cause is, and you know, there might be one tow truck, two, three, or four that come and all sort of vying to, to put your car, uh, hook your car up to their truck. And from that stems all kinds of things, things like storage fees, the body shop repair costs, um, you know, and, and motorists feeling really taken av- advantage of. Uh, and in some cases, you know, the fraud committee identified this as a, an insurance review because it's, it's contributing to the inflation of, of insurance prices in Ontario. Uh, when when you're having these discussions on the side of the road, obviously uh, in lots of situations, especially if it's an accident, if, if no one's hurt, there's certainly lots of, of distress and, and, and people wondering what the heck to do. Are police on your side in this situation? Uh, or are they just trying to get things off the road? I mean, d- d- are they interested in what's going on and, and how these tow truck drivers may be vying for your business? Well, they don't want people to be taken advantage of, absolutely. And 
you know, the police aren't always at every breakdown or collision scene. That would really uh, almost be impossible uh, these days with the amount of and volume on, on our roads. Um, but there is also an interest to get the roads cleared as possible, especially the highways, because collisions do contribute to congestion or even breakdowns. People are gawking. There's the safety factor that a lot of times secondary collisions are a result of people sort of not paying attention to the road and sort of seeing, you know, why is that car stopped there or look at that collision. So the police are interested, obviously, in, in making sure the roads are cleared and that people are safe. Um, but, you know, that's their interest. It's about safety. It's about um, just all of these things that go into making sure that the, there's safety on the roads and the roads are clear. They're not always at every collision scene and can't manage every tow that happens. Um, and so this is really an empowerment tool to get people to be able to know in that vulnerable situation, you know, what are the things that they can think about and what are their rights or a piece of um, towing bill of rights in their glove compartment that they can go to so they don't have to think about it and All right. remember what the eight points are. Let's go over this and, and give everybody some information here. What are these points? You have the right to decide who can tow your vehicle and to what location mm-hmm. unless the police are involved and direct otherwise. So first and foremost, you decide, not someone just hooking up your car saying, okay, you're coming with me. Uh, secondly, they have to get you to sign a permission to tow form before towing starts. If you're part of an auto club, you don't need permission to tow because you've given that auto club the right to right. tow your vehicle. The towing company must provide you with an itemized invoice before receiving payment. Your final bill can't be more than 10% above that quoted price. You can pay by credit card. Uh, if your vehicle is in storage, either at a towing or storage facility, you can get your personal items during business hours. You must be notified where your vehicle has been towed to. And the tow operator must disclose that they're getting a financial incentive hmm. to taking your vehicle to a particular storage facility or repair or body shop. Where? What do you do if you don't know where to have it towed? I mean, I don't know. Gee whiz. Where do you take them when they get bashed up? What if you're in that scenario? You don't know. Well, if you're in a collision, you really, and, and it's not about anyone being hurt and the police needing to be on scene and damage is under $2,000 and you don't have to go to a collision repair, or sorry, a collision reporting center. You really should be calling your insurance companies. Hmm. If it's, you know, it's a collision and you're going to be putting it through insurance. They often have um, a set list, depending on where you live, of body shops that they are they have a preference that you for you to deal with, um, and that you know helps keeps costs minimized because they they've pre-organized all of that. And so, you know, if police aren't involved. Otherwise, if police need to be involved, that should be your first call. Second call should be. Um, you know, having uh, that insurance call to help direct you to where you have to go if, if you're not going to a collision reporting center. If you know someone, if you have a, a repair facility that you often deal with, you can have it towed there or, or home until you make that decision. Mm. Uh, is there a pattern of rogue towers? Um, is there something to keep an eye for, out for? What should we look for? I mean, is, is it smaller companies, bigger companies? What are we looking for? I mean, I, what I'll say is that most operators in Ontario are responsible operators who put safety and customer service at the forefront of what they do. But if you're feeling pressured, if you're getting this, you know, an aggressive behavior of, no, 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 you have to come with me, you only have like 10 minutes before you have to come off the highway, those types of pressure tactics are a sign that something's not right. Mm. Uh, because in the end, you have the right to decide. And uh, that that's a, a big sign. If they're trying to pressure you into going to somebody that they know someone, they'll get you a good deal, it's close by, 
these are other examples of there's something else going on here. So these are the signs to, to watch out for. And nobody should be asking you to get out of your vehicle, especially if you're on the side of a roadway. Um, you know, they, you should be in that position of comfort within your side, your locked car, if you need to be, uh, so that you can think through the decisions. Hmm. How big a problem is this? Well, you know, this is the, the challenge and, and the benefit is, the challenge is we don't know how big this problem is necessarily. It, we hear stories all the time, and there's been some really big stories that are covered in the media. Um, but we know that it was a big enough problem that we had to pass these laws. Hmm. Where do <laughs> so, we find the Towing Bill of Rights? Towrights.ca. You can get a downloadable version at towrights.ca that you can keep in your car. All right, Teresa Dofelis is with us, Government and Community Relations, CAA, South Central Ontario. I guess you don't have this issue if you're with uh, a CAA, are you? Do you? Well, if you have an auto club, that would be your first call if it's not a, a collision scene. Right. And anybody else telling you there, if it's not the CAA uh, driver that comes up and CAA has uh, ident- drivers have identification, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, they're not going to make you pay for the whole tow at the scene. That's another indication. Oh, we work for CAA. You pay us and they'll reimburse you. That's um, another red flag. Wow. All right, Teresa DeFelice has been with us from CAA South Central Ontario. Teresa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great, thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.